You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Again, preachers on this difficult topic. I'm joking. It's always a privilege uh, when we get to preach God's word uh, to God's people. And, and, and today is no different. This morning was no different for me. Um, because of the, the weightiness or the, the, the topic, if any of you have children here, just know we're going to be addressing some sensitive issues as it relates to uh, sex and marriage. And so if you uh, want to have your kids taken out at this time, now would be the time. But if not, uh, we can jump right in. As um, Marshall said, my name is Carlos and I'm a church planting resident here uh, at Sojourn Montrose uh, looking to plant uh, by God's grace here in the near future, uh, a new local expression of God's church in the East End of Houston. So if you have any questions about that, or if you find yourself uh, visiting us today and living on that side of town, I'd love to talk to you after uh, the gathering. But we've been in a series through uh, this letter of 1 Corinthians, right? And we've heard that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a young church in the city of Corinth, right? A church that was divided, a church that was struggling with what it looked like to live more like Christ, to live more like citizens of the kingdom of God than citizens of the city of Corinth. And so before we go any further, uh, please join me in prayer. Father, once again, we come before you and we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege that it is to uh, open up your scriptures and dive into them, for in them we know we have we find life, and so we ask that your word, which is living, would cause us to come to life. And we ask that you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we've heard over the last few weeks kind of a brief background, and I'll kind of repeat some of that and add a bit more um, over the last uh, several weeks. We've heard that the city of Corinth uh, was essentially a city that was intellectual. It was a city that was prosperous, uh, yet it was also a city that was very morally corrupt. And as we've learned through this letter, the issues that Paul addresses here in this letter are issues where the Corinthian church was living more like Corinth than like citizens of God's kingdom. In other words, the, the influential culture of immorality had kind of crept into the Corinthian church. Now it's important that we that we know that the, the primary occasion, primary reason for which Paul wrote this letter was because the Corinthian church had written a previous letter to him asking him questions, right? But what mattered so much more to Paul was the news that had come to him outside of this letter that he received from the Corinthians. See, he had gotten word about what I just shared, that the Corinthians were living more like Corinth than like citizens of God's kingdom. And so that's why Paul spent the first six chapters of this letter addressing these sin issues before even getting to address the specific questions that the Corinthian church had for Paul. So we, we've, we've reached up to that point. We, we just finished chapter six last week. 
when Cole preached. So now we, we get to dive into the, the specific questions that, that the Corinthian church had for Paul, and Paul begins to address these questions. And so over the next three weeks, we'll be in a mini-series within this greater series of 1 Corinthians titled, Live as You Are Called, where we'll look at Paul's response and what he had to say about sex in the context of marriage, singleness, and then we'll finish our third week talking about living as we're called to live as Christians. And so as, as it was evident from the reading of the scripture this morning, we'll be talking about sex in marriage. And now, of course, we're, we're walking through a book, which means this is not a, a sermon that's all-encompassing about marriage. And so we'll address what Paul addresses here. So there may be some questions that we walk, as we walk through this text about marriage that we don't particularly address. And I would encourage you to have those conversations within your parish. And so now those uh, in those particular times, there was a, a, a known movement of people who, who deeply kind of admired ascetic practices or the practices of severe self-discipline and self-denial from all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. And one of the things that they practiced was celibacy, staying completely away from all forms of sexual relationships with anyone, and even to the extreme of staying away from sexual relations with their spouse. And clearly many Corinthians shared this view and shared this practice, but there was also another camp so while this camp, more ascetic and more kind of self, walking in self-denial, saw sex as bad, we also had another camp who, 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 who thought that sex was just simply a, just a, an appetite to satisfy. Just like when we're hungry, we eat to satisfy our hunger. And we have sexual desire, we ought to just simply satisfy it as another appetite and just like with food, we can we can overeat, right? And, and, and the same would apply here. But they, they viewed it simply as just an appetite to be satisfied. So in other words, these particular Corinthians, Corinthians uh, were just living by the motto, I'm, I'm just going to do me. Whenever, whenever I have the desire, I'm going to satisfy. But then there was a third view, right? We have this third view from Paul, the, the scriptures view of sex, which will guide and inform his entire view of marriage as we as we continue down um, these verses in chapter seven. So let's start with verse one. Let me read it again for us. It says, "Now concerning the matter about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman." So here, Paul begins by by quoting something the Corinthian church had probably written to him in their letter to him. And of course, this coming from the camp that thought sex is bad, we, we ought to abstain from it completely. But Paul quickly responds and, and, and gets straight to the point in verse 2 and essentially responds with, no, that, that's wrong. Sex is not bad. Sex is a good gift. And Paul states that because of temptation to sexual sin, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own Husband. Now, it's important to note something here, that Paul is not saying that, that because Corinth was a very sinful city, a very immoral city, to kind of flee the immorality within their city, 
they ought to get married. Or he's not saying if you can't control if you can't control your sexual desires, then you ought to get married. So that that can solve the issue. What Paul here is not saying is that marriage solves a sin issue. Marriage does not solve a sin issue. He is saying, however, that marriage is one way that God has given us to put a check on sexual sin. And he draws this idea from the Old Testament. And let me read Proverbs 5, 18 through 20 for us. It says this, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? See here, essentially what Paul is, uh, when he when he refers to Old Testament wisdom, uh, what he's essentially saying is that sexual sin and temptation is not simply an issue with Corinth, but it's a human heart issue. And one of the ways, one of the gifts God has given us as a way to check this, as I said, is through a spouse. And then in verse three, he begins to, to, to kind of explain or expound this view as he answers the Corinthians. And his explanation about what marriage should look like in verse three is, is the most countercultural and even unprecedented view that their particular culture at that period of time had been exposed to. So let me read verses three and four for us again. It says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. See here it, in, in the original language, right, in, in Greek, essentially what we read here is that Paul is telling both the husband and the wife, you, you must fulfill your duty to your spouse. You must fulfill your duty to your spouse. You're, you're obligated to fulfill your, your duty as a husband to your wife and you're obligated to fulfill your duty as wife to your husband. And if we're, if we're going to understand this in, 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 in the right way, we need to know that, that this is not a, a you owe me kind of posture to take, but it's an I owe you kind of posture to take. And so this means that this is not a green light for a, a conversation to go something like this. Hey, uh, wife or hey, husband, uh, you, you need to meet my needs. I, I demand this from you. I don't care if you're tired. I don't care what you're going through today, but I, I need you to fulfill my needs. It's totally flipped upside down. It's actually, hey, I want to serve you. I lay my life down to serve you as my spouse. So we give ourselves. We don't, we don't force or demand the other to give themselves to us. We give ourselves. We don't force or demand the other to give themselves to us. 
And this is a big difference in perspective. And it goes in really in conjunction with, with, with what we read last week. The fact that we're not our own. When we, when we view our relationship between us and God, Christ willfully gave up his rights. Though he was God, right? He gave up his rights, came down to earth, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then we willfully, because we know Christ is a good Lord, because we know God is a good God who seeks our good, we willfully submit our life. And as Paul said, we were bought with a price. We are not our own. And so he calls us to glorify God in our bodies. And as we model in marriage the relationship between Christ and the church, we also then give ourselves to our spouse. And then Paul makes a statement here that both, that both spouses belong to each other, which is extremely important to notice here. See, see back then it was a cultural norm in secular culture to see women as property. It was normal to say to a woman that she should give her rights over to her husband. That when she gets married to her husband, now she must do everything in her power to satisfy and fulfill her husband. That was the norm. But it was unheard of, even offensive to secular culture, to say that a husband should also be obligated to fulfill his wife. To say to a husband that you must fulfill your duty, you must give authority over your body to your wife. And this was revolutionary in that culture. Because only, as I said, only wives belong to their husbands. Husbands never belonged to their wives. So the New Testament, as it is being written here by Paul, actually gave equal ownership to the spouse in marriage, something that was countercultural at that time. And no matter how revolutionary it might have sounded to the city of Corinth, it wasn't completely unheard of in human history. See, if we, if we once again go back into Old Testament literature, Old Testament wisdom, we find that in the Song of Solomon, King Solomon says this, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So what is King Solomon saying there? He's saying what essentially Paul is reminding the Corinthian church here. The husband gives himself to his wife and, his, and, the, and the wife gives herself to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And we need to make it clear here that, that this isn't a justification for any form of abuse, any form of force, any form of manipulation. 
when it isn't a justification for feeling entitled in marriage either. And it isn't a verse that we throw in the face of our spouse and say, see, I have authority over your body. But rather, it's the, it's the posture of saying, I will do whatever I can in my power to serve you as my husband, you as my wife. And then Paul gets practical with them in verse 5. By, by sharing how to apply verses 2 through 4 within the context of marriage. So let's look at that verse. It says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So after, after giving the Corinthians a, a scriptural view of, of sex and marriage, he calls spouses to not deprive one another. Essentially, in other words, he's saying to, to married people, have sex. Have, have lots of sex. And if you agree to abstain from it for a limited time for the sake of prayer and maybe fasting even, then don't deprive each other for too long so that Satan doesn't come in and put temptation right in front of you. In other words, don't, don't do something you're not called to do. Within marriage, sex is a gift. Sex is good. Use it for that purpose. And even give glory to God through it. But don't abstain for too long for something that God has deemed clean and good. Often when we, when we try to abstain from things God has deemed good, that's an opportunity for the enemy to come in and play something that's not good in front of us. That's essentially what Paul is trying to encourage the Corinthians with. And so Paul gets very practical here. And shares this with them. So, so, so let's get practical as well. And it, it might be a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. The scriptures often make us feel uncomfortable, but it's for our good and it's for God's glory. And so, speaking of temptation being placed in front of us by Satan, I want you to ask yourself: What are some ways the enemy puts temptation in front of you? And I'm particularly speaking to married couples here, although obviously can apply to singles in here as well. Next week, we'll dive deeper into singleness. But think about it. What are some ways the enemy tempts you and puts temptation in front of you? Allow me, allow me to share some general examples, and, and maybe you might resonate with, with these. Number one, justified masturbation. Your, your mind, uh, your thinking may go something like this. Well, my spouse is tired. My spouse doesn't seem to be, uh, doesn't seem to have the same sex drive as I do. And so I don't, don't want to bring it up again. It might just cause an argument. So I'll just, I'll just satisfy my own appetite on my own. And it, and it leads to the, the second example, justified porn use as well. This the same kind of mindset. Well, but maybe maybe you might even be thinking, well, I, I can't get from my wife what I get from this. So at that point, your, your, your sinful desires and Satan placing temptation in front of you has influenced your thinking, influenced our thinking. And then number three, uh, one that's more subtle, but 
I think very dangerous is attention seeking from other men and other women. Now this one here, we might feel as if our spouse isn't giving us the attention that we desire, whether physical or emotional. But there's this really cute guy, this really cute girl at work who seems to always give us attention and always seems to compliment us in ways that our spouse maybe hasn't done so in a while. And then next thing you know, you find yourself having an, an inappropriate or at the very least a questionable small conversation with them here and there. Now, I want us to, to listen to this, all of us here, brothers and sisters, the, the, the compliments, the attention, or the looks from, from a person other than our spouse. Is, is dangerously intoxicated. When we're feeling like our spouse isn't meeting our physical or emotional needs, and we fail to talk to our spouse about this, it's a breeding ground for sin and it's a breeding ground for Satan to place temptation right in front of us. We, we must remember that he is a roaring lion seeking to devour. So for the sake of the future of our marriages, if that's you in the room today, I would highly encourage you to spend some time with your spouse. Maybe sharing some frustrations or maybe sharing even your struggles with sin. But the breeding ground for temptation and sin is when we keep those things hidden and when we keep those things in the dark. Fight temptation, fight the enemy's schemes together as a, as a unit, as a team, the way God intended. And again, the goal is that we both, uh, both spouses approach each other with an IOU posture instead of you owe me. And all these temptations and, and many others maybe that I failed to mention are, are doors that we open for the enemy to place temptation right in front of us. And one of the ways that God closes those doors is through our spouse. So allow me to share a bit from, from my story. It was, it was transformative for me the first time my wife expressed her desire to help me fight my sin together as I confess sin and temptation to her. See, I'm, I'm in this fight as well. Just because I'm up here doesn't mean I don't struggle. We heard from Cole last week as well. We're in this fight together. And I myself also have to place certain boundaries and barriers in my life, in my fight against this kind of sin. And my wife is a way, my wife is a gift and a way that God helps me fight that sin. So we saw that Paul began chapter 7 by, by answering this question about sex, by saying sex is good, that you should most certainly have sex and enjoy it in marriage, and that husband and wife give of themselves to each other. And then this view informs his understanding of what marriage is as we jump into verse 10. 
verse 10 and 11. This portion is, is particularly to marriages where both spouses were believers. And, and Paul tells the Corinthians that marriage is permanent. As opposed to the very low and flippant view of marriage within uh, the city of Corinth. And so here Paul contrasts or, or shows the, kind of the difference between the Bible's view of marriage with this low view of marriage that was rampant in the city of Corinth. And he's reaffirming God's heart for marriage. That God intended it to be a lifelong commitment. And we might ask the question, well, why didn't he talk anything about divorce, specifically what Jesus addresses in Matthew, or Jesus gives an exception to divorce, which is adultery or sexual immorality? And I believe that, that again, we're, we're going through a letter that Paul wrote specifically to a situation that was taking place in Corinth. And as I stated already, the, the, the view of marriage in Corinth was so low. In fact, sometimes on their wedding day, some women would be told that if their husband went off and hired a prostitute, that it didn't mean that the husband didn't love the wife. He was simply just gratifying his desires. Their view of marriage was very low. And Paul wants to reaffirm to them God's heart for marriage, that he never intended for there to be divorce. He's applying truth, the truth that Scripture shares and, and tr the truth that Scripture teaches us to a localized context. And then he, he proceeds on in verse 12 through 14 to talk to those who are married to an unbelieving spouse. Now, picture yourself in the city of Corinth where a church is being planted and the gospel is being heard for the very first time. And people are living their life according to the ways of Corinth. And then someone hears the gospel and someone responds to the gospel in repentance and faith and they become Christians. And they join this church plant. But the only issue is that their spouse doesn't become a Christian. And so they're left with the question, what do I do? Should I leave my husband or should I leave my wife because they are not a Christian? And Paul addresses this concern with them. And he says, he says, if your unbelieving spouse desires to stay with you, then by all means, stay with them. He says, for the in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. So Paul is, 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 is telling the Corinthian believers, those who are, are maybe married to a non-Christian, no, don't leave your spouse because they're not Christian. God doesn't see your union as dirty or unclean or invalid because your spouse is not a Christian. On the contrary, because you're a Christian and in, in, in some way, to a certain extent, your spouse is made holy. Now, we know that doesn't mean that the spouse is automatically 
a Christian or seen as saved in the eyes of God. But there is a, a, a mysterious way in which because of their union, their spouse is, is distinct because they're married to a Christian. And then, he, and then he applies it to their children as well. He says, it also applies to your children. Otherwise, they would be unclean as well. So he encourages and charges Christian spouses to remain with their non-Christian spouses because marriage is just that sacred. But then he does give instructions on what to do if the non-Christian spouse wants out. So let's read verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so Paul says here that, that if the non-Christian spouse doesn't want to stay any longer, after you've tried to save your marriage and after you've tried to reconcile, he charges the Christian spouse to, to be at peace and to let them go. But, but this is what I find striking. As, we, as we're reading this, Paul is addressing uh, a non-Christian uh, spouse who wants to leave. And he tells the Christian spouse, hey, let them go if they desire to go. After you've tried to reconcile, let them Go, for God has called you to peace. And immediately after that, Paul says this to the Christian spouse. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? He doesn't say, hey, if you've tried everything in your power to save this marriage and, and your non-Christian spouse doesn't want to be with you, let them go. It's okay. It's not the worst thing that could happen. He immediately Follows that up by saying, how do you know whether you will save your husband? And that tells me that that Paul assumed that the reason why the non the, the reason why the Christian spouse wanted to save the marriage and wanted to remain with their non-Christian spouse was because of genuine care and concern for their spouse. What is this? What does this tell us? It tells us that. Paul seems to be assuming that if the gospel has transformed a person's heart, and when we talk about the context of marriage, specifically being married to a person who doesn't profess faith in Christ, that you now desire for the gospel to impact your spouse. And if they choose to leave, then your heart breaks out of, out of goodwill, out of concern, out of care, for your non-Christian spouse's soul. Why would Paul make this assumption about Christians, Christian spouses? Well, because one of the most clear, one of the most obvious marks of a person who's been transformed and impacted by the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that we will then in turn desire for other people, especially those that we love, to be impacted and transformed by the gospel as well. Paul's deep desire for the Corinthian church is that the gospel would inform how they view sex, how they view 
marriage and how they view their relationship either to a Christian spouse or a non-Christian spouse. His deep desire is that the gospel would inform and those would be the lenses through which we view our interactions in the confines, in the context of marriage. Why though? Because Jesus, the husband, right? The, the, the husband of the bride, the church, gave up his rights. And though he had all authority, chose to humble himself when he came into this world. As I alluded to earlier, Philippians chapter two says that even though Christ in the form was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's sacrificial love. That's giving up authority. That's humbling yourself. Giving your life for the sake of those that you love. And then why does, why are we commanded uh, to, to not get divorced, to try everything in our power to prevent divorce from happening? Because Christ tells us, brothers and sisters, I will never divorce you. Jesus says to the church, his beautiful bride. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And it's as if he were to say to us today, no matter how broken you may feel or no matter how broken you may truly be, I chose you. I've laid down my life to have you and I won't let you go. I'll pursue you even when you don't want to be pursued. I'll whisper words of life into your ears when you feel like death. I'll help you fight your sin battles. I'm in this with you. As a matter of fact, I've given you the Holy Spirit so you could fight this sin struggle. I'm more concerned about your holiness than you are about your holiness. I've written my name on that marriage covenant in blood, the blood that I shed for your sins to win you back to the kingdom of light. And now that you're mine, I'll never allow you to forsake me without ferociously pursuing you. You may try to leave me and you may succeed temporarily, but my love is stronger than the grave. I have won you over and I will not lose you. You are secured in my hand and I will see to it that I honor the Father by presenting you without spot and without blemish on that great day. And when our view of, of marriage is, is driven and controlled by this one true and beautiful gospel message, then it's inevitable that we view marriage as a lifelong commitment to our spouse, no matter how hard it may be, no matter how hard it may get. We are bound to each other in holy matrimony for as long as we live. As we read in verse 39 and 40, when one spouse passes away, Paul says the other is free to marry, but then he says, states his opinion. He says, 
He believes that the living spouse would be happier if they remained without marrying again. Why does he do this? Again, believe because he's elevating the importance and the permanence of marriage in a city that has lowered the view of marriage. He's showing that marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is a gift, but it is not the ultimate gift. It's a shadow of what is to come one day when the Messiah comes back for his bride and takes her with him for all eternity. And so what is sex then? It's a foretaste of that heavenly bliss, that day when, when there will be no more pain, that day when there will be no more tears. And so that means that in a sense, Sex is the tiniest shadow of what is to come when we're in glory. It means it's not bad. It means it's definitely not just an appetite to be satisfied. It's a small shadow of what is to come. Oh, that we would have this view of sex and of marriage. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word is life, and your word is powerful, but our words are empty. And so I pray, God, that the words that were spoken from your scripture, from your word, would impact our hearts, that your gospel would radically reshape the way we view sex in a very sexualized culture and radically reshape the way we view marriage in our culture. And we pray, ultimately, that we would have the lenses of your gospel as we view these things. We pray this in Christ's name.